take your Bibles and find in them the eighth chapter in the Gospel of John, not a passage that you might regularly expect, normally expect to be a Christmas sermon, but if you'll give me a minute, I think I can explain to you why I think it's appropriate today. This Christmas, this Advent season, I have preached all of my Advent sermons from the first chapter of John. And if you've been with us, then you know that all of those sermons have been focused on who Jesus is and what he came to do. So we we talked about how Jesus is the light of men who brings about the light of God's truth into the darkness of this world. We we talked about how he is the the salvation for our sin. He is the, the ransom for those who are enslaved, that he is the um, that he is the king of kings. And this morning, we, we move to chapter 8, where, we, where I want to make the case that he is the one who sets the captives free. Now, chapter 8, clearly well into the ministry of Jesus. But um, I want to read this passage. We'll pray, and then I hope to give you some connections to the, the, the birth of Jesus and, and why I think it's appropriate on this wonderful Christmas day. Let me just take a, a pastoral moment here and just say, it looks awful good to look out and see you this morning. I'm glad you're here. You know, preachers often wonder sometimes when it's cold, when it's wet, uh, when it's hot, and when there's something going on, will anybody show up for Sunday worship? Well, it's a cold day out there. And I know, know, listen, I know our northern neighbors make fun of us, but in South Georgia, it's a big deal when it's in the 20s. Y'all were cold this morning, weren't you? And uh, we, all of us had a lot of things going on this morning, and a lot of us have a lot of things going on this afternoon, but it blesses my heart that you chose to be in the house of the Lord today. Let's stand up to read God's Word today. John chapter 8, I want to pick up in verse 31. Jesus is speaking to uh, the Pharisees, people who were, spent their life um, uh, studying the law, trying to keep the law uh, and, and we're pretty proud of themselves for being able to do it quite well. And we're very proud of their heritage, their, their ethnicity of being Jews and children of Abraham. Chapter 8, verse 31 of the Gospel of John. Here's what the Word of God has to say. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed, who, who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I I say to you, Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. So the great hope of Christmas is twofold. Here it is. 
The great hope of Christmas is, number one, that the long-awaited promise of God to send a Messiah is fulfilled. You read the Old Testament, and the prophets talked about a Messiah. We, we read last night in our Christmas Eve service from Isaiah 9, where Isaiah was writing about a son that would be born, a child that would be given. And so there was this long, long hoped for uh, the fulfillment of God's promise to bring about a Messiah. And by the way, Messiah and Christ, similar words. Messiah would be from the Hebrew, the Christ would be from the Greek. So those t- tend to be interchangeable. It's one way, Messiah, Jesus, Jesus, the Christ. The long anticipated, the long hoped for Messiah. But the second is the long awaited promise of what the Messiah would, would do. And with Jesus being born, the work of the Messiah began. With Jesus being born, not only was the promise fulfilled, but the the actions, the, the things that would follow the coming of the Messiah began to happen. The biblical story of the birth of Jesus is not the end of the story. It really is the the beginning. Those who witnessed the birth of the Messiah rejoiced in God's deliverance, even while it had yet to truly been brought to its fruition, simply by seeing Jesus, because they knew with the advent of the Messiah, the advent of the Christ, all the other promises that would come would indeed come. One of the great hymns of praise in all of Scripture is the Magnificat that Mary speaks after hearing from the the, the angel Gabriel announcing to her that even in her virginity she was going to bear a child conceived by the Holy Spirit. And those wonderful words that she speaks, listen to some of them. In verse 51 through 55 of the first chapter of Luke, Mary says, he has shown strength with his arms. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to the offspring forever. You know what she's talking about? She's talking about being set free from the oppressor, from the captor. The captives would be set free. John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, he would prophesy at the birth of his son, John. And in his prophecy, and later in that same chapter of Luke, he would say that Jesus would be the one who would save us from our enemies, that Jesus would deliver us from the hand of our enemies, that Jesus would forgive us our sins and guide our feet in the way of peace. In part, what he was talking about is that the captives would be set free from the oppressor. From the one who enslaves. You may remember an old man, Simeon, who had long prayed to be able to behold the Messiah, to see the Messiah with his own eyes. When Mary and Joseph took Jesus to the, sim- to the temple, Simeon was able to see Jesus. And when he did, he declared over him, My eyes have seen my salvation. He was looking forward and realizing the deliverance that God had brought through Jesus. And then there's the old prophetess, Anna, who thanked God when she saw Jesus for bringing redemption to Jerusalem. Now, in the days of Jesus' birth, 
Israel was not a free nation. They were under the unhappy uh, control of and rule of Rome. In fact, when you read the New Testament, one of the the veneers over all of that, one of the one of the contexts that you need to understand as you read the entirety of the New Testament from beginning to the end is the political situation of Israel being frustrated and bucking under the pressure, the rule, the domination of Rome. But God was doing more than bringing political relief. The Messiah, Jesus, brought freedom from the enslavement of sin. On this Christmas Day, I want us to rejoice that Jesus, the Messiah, has come to set us free from the bondage of sin that we might be transformed from slaves to sons and have the assurance of hope. In fact, that's just the two very simple things I want you to see this morning from this passage is that through Jesus, we are transformed from slaves to sons and by the power of Jesus alone do we have the assurance of hope in salvation. Let's begin with that idea of being transformed from slaves to sons. Now, Jesus is speaking to Pharisees. He's speaking to Jews who are proud of their Jewishness, Jews who are proud of their law keeping. And he says to them, listen, if you're my disciple, then, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And if you were listening when I was reading the passage, you heard pretty quickly they reacted to that. They didn't react so much to the truth part. They react to, uh, to do the free part. And they said, wait a minute. We are children of Abraham. We're, we're the, 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 the favored people, the blessed people, and we've never been enslaved to anyone. Now, you might push back on them and say, now, wait a minute, guys, you, you're, you're not a nation that is free. But what they mean by that is they had not been owned, they had not been property, they had not been technically slaves of anyone. And so saying that, they said, what do you mean we need to even be set free? We're already free. But Jesus says, we're not. You're not free unless you are free in the truth of the gospel. Friends, when Jesus was born to the Virgin Mary, he brought about the hope that we could could be transformed from slaves to sons, that we would no longer be slaves to sin. The world in which Jesus was born was a world of political conflict. Israel was, a, was an occupied nation and very unhappy with the rule of Rome. You may remember that even at the death of Jesus, there's this whole interplay between what the, 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 the religious leaders could do and couldn't do. In fact, their, their expression of their faith and the working out of the religious commands of God was only at the permission of Rome. Even so, the Jews were proud that they were God's chosen people. So that's why you hear in verses 1 and 32 verses 31 and 32 that when Jesus says the truth will set you free what really gets them and their reaction is this issue of freedom. In verse 33 the Pharisees respond with a rejection of his words with these two statements we are children of Abraham and we're not slaves. Now when they say they are children of Abraham what they mean by that is that they were God's chosen people. They're recognizing that they're different from all the rest of the world. They're God's chosen people. And when they say they've not been slain, they mean that in the technical sense, they've not been owned by another. 
Here's where Jesus gives understanding to our relationship with sin. And he says to them, if you practice sin, you are by definition enslaved to sin. Now listen carefully here. Like the Pharisees, many of us today assume that our relationship to sin is one of domination, not of submission. Listen to me carefully. Like the Pharisees of old, many of us today assume that our relationship with sin is one of control, not of one being controlled. We think about sin as we participate in, in, it, in it freely. We, we think about sin that it's something we can take today and leave tomorrow. We think about sin as not having any lasting influence over us or certainly no control over us. We're not enslaved to sin is what we would say. Jesus says to practice something is to, give, is to be enslaved to sin. To practice something is to give continued attention and effort to something. So to practice sin is to give your life to that sin. When you practice sin, your relationship to sin is not one of domination, but of submission. Friends, sin captures your heart and mind. By definition, sin corrupts your spirit Sin condemns you before a holy God and it enslaves you to itself. Once you have given yourself to sin, you're not, you have no dominion over it. It has dominion over you. The Bible tells us that everyone, that everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Thus, all are enslaved to sin regardless of who your family is, regardless of what you've accomplished, and certainly regardless of what political or social status you hold. So the Jewish Pharisees who gave their life to keeping the law were just as enslaved to sin as the Gentiles they so loved to be separated from. Friends, the Messiah came. Jesus came to break the chains of sin. The Messiah came to set the captives free. The Messiah came to deliver us from the bondage of sin. The Christmas hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, speaks longingly of the day that the Messiah would come and set the captives free. Listen to what it says. It says, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, to ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appears. Friends, Emmanuel has come that we might remain in slavery to sin no longer. We might be slaves no longer, but secondly, that we might be welcomed into the presence of God. So Jesus doubles down on this idea of slavery, and he says something else about slaves. Now remember, they have said, we are children of Abraham, meaning we're God's favored people, beloved people, chosen people. But look at what Jesus says to them. Jesus said, truly, this is verse 34, truly I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And then he says in verse 35, the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. And what Jesus is saying with that seemingly simple analogy is that only those who have been set free by the blood of Jesus and made sons of God can remain and will be welcomed into the presence of God. Because there's a difference, though maybe not known at first, there is a great chasm of difference between a slave and a son. 
It was true that the Pharisees were biologically descendants of Abraham. They could, place, they could trace their lineage from their father all the way back to Abraham. And they had placed their eternal assurance of being right with God in their blood relationship. They were confident that they were sons of God because of who their earthly father was. In verse 34 and 35, Jesus gives a greater understanding to what it means to be children of Abraham. Now, this is key. The Pharisees thought it was only dependent upon blood kinship, but Jesus makes clear that it's dependent on faith. God will account that God will account as righteousness. The children of Abraham are not those who share the same bloodline with Abraham. The children of Abraham are those who share the same faith line with Abraham. Jesus says, all those who believe in me are sons of God. Only true children enjoy the lasting, remaining presence with the Father. Now, here's what he's talking about there. In childhood, the difference between a slave and a son is not all that distinguishable. In fact, it very may well have been, and this would have been an understanding that they would have captured pretty quickly, that in the household... The children of the master and the children of the master's slaves, who were also slaves, may have indeed played together in the backyard. And if you'd have looked out the back window, you may not have been able to tell the difference between the children who were slaves and the children of the master. Because little children are playing, there's no real distinction between them. They play maybe with the same toys and did the same things. But you understand that as those children grew, the the, the reality of their life continued to separate. The children were growing up into the receiving of the inheritance of their father, and the slaves were not. That's why Jesus says, listen, that the, 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 the slave and the son don't remain in the house forever. Oh, there may be a season where you cannot distinguish a difference, but upon a adulthood, there is a great difference. And upon the receiving of the inheritance, the slave has no, uh, uh, has no right to the inheritance where the son has full right to the inheritance. The Messiah transforms who you are from slave to son. Only a son only a child is welcomed into the presence of the Father, welcomed to enjoy the presence and welcomed to remain in the presence. Now listen to me carefully, friend. The Pharisees were trusting that simply because of who they were and what they had done, that they were assuming that they were going to be able to be welcomed into the presence of God and remain into the presence of God. But Jesus makes a very clear distinction. It doesn't matter who you are, and it doesn't matter what you've done. It matters if only you have believed on the Son unto salvation. That's what distinguishes between children of God and children of the deceiver and and Satan. And that's why the difference is, he says, either you're a slave to sin because you're practicing sin, or you're a child of God, welcomed into the presence of God. When Jesus was born, we think so much of that, 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 that what the Christmas hymns present as a beautiful, tranquil scene of being laid in a manger. Actually, I don't think it was all that tranquil, maybe not been all that peaceful. It was probably cold and hard. But Jesus, when he was born, was born 
with the purpose of taking those who were ensnared and enslaved to sin and setting the captives free that we might be transformed from slave to son. But there's one other thing I want you to see out of this passage. And that's found in verse 36. So if you have a copy of Scripture, look back in your passage with me. I mean, this is the kicker where Jesus says, So, if the Son, meaning himself, if the Son has set you free, you will be free indeed. Now, just two things I want you to understand from that, from that verse. Number one, our hope of eternity is founded on the work of Jesus. If the Son has set you free. Verse 36 is one of the most precious verses in all of Scripture. It makes clear how freedom from sin is had. We cannot earn or manufacture our own freedom, but the Messiah, Jesus, has made a way for us. In John chapter 1, John the Baptist declares that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Only through the work of Jesus on the cross are we set free from the condemnation and slavery of sin. This is why Jesus says, if the Son has set you free. There's no reference here to who we are. So he doesn't say, if you're, if you're a child of Abraham, if you're from the South, if you're an American, if you're, oh, he didn't put any distinguisher about that. He just simply speaks about his own work. If the Son has set you free. There's no reference to who you are. There's no reference to what we, you do. Oh, he's speaking to Pharisees who did a lot unto righteousness, but it meant nothing unto their salvation. Certainly not a reference to their work or who they are. This is only a reference to the work of Jesus alone. The freedom from sin and eternal life through salvation is found only in Jesus, if the Son has set you free. And then he says, you are free indeed. Now, I don't think he's just repeating himself there. I think what he's saying is it is dependent upon the work of Jesus and it, it is secured, the hope is secured by the power of Jesus. So the second part of verse 36 is just as powerful as the first. And this is what I mean by this. If Jesus has set you free, your freedom you are free indeed. In other words, there's nothing else to do. If Jesus made you free, then by definition, dear friends, for all of eternity, by the power and the assurance of Christ, you are free indeed. There's nothing else to do on your behalf. There's no other authority to seek for your freedom. And there's no further requirement for you to check off. Now, kids, listen to me because you'll appreciate this analogy here. Sometimes in home life, and sometimes even in work life, we seek permission to do something and only receive a qualified permission. And this is what a qualified permission will sound like. It's all right with me, but you need to check with your mother. Uh-huh, you've heard that. Or, or maybe at work. You want to do something, and you go to who you think has authority, and they say, look, it's okay with me. I'd love for you to do that, but you need to go make sure it's okay with so-and-so. 
And if you really want to be frustrated, sometimes you go to that next person and you go, listen, uh, this other person said it was okay. I'm looking for permission to do this. And they go, oh yeah, that's a brilliant idea. I think you ought to do that. But before you do, why don't you check it with somebody else? And all of a sudden you're going around the world getting qualified permission because no one has the authority to really give you permission to do it. Listen carefully. The reason why they're giving you permission with a qualification is that they don't have the full authority to give you permission to do whatever it is that you're wanting to do. But when the king grants permission, there's no further authority required. And when the king of kings and the Lord of lords grants permission, it would be wrong to ask another. Do you follow this? That's why when Jesus says, if the son has set you free, the one who is paid for and bought and who's, by whose power you are made free, if the Son has set you free, brother and sister, you are free indeed to do anything else, to ask anything else, to seek authority from anything else, what to be denied, to be to deny the very power and the authority of the one who has indeed set you free. If the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. The hope of salvation is not found in any other power than in the power of Jesus, who was born of a virgin, who is God himself in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us, that he might set the captives free. Human history is full of unspeakable horrors. Unspeakable horrors of things that man has done to other men, of inflicting pain and hardship, and oftentimes enslavement of other people. In modern history, maybe the most depraved and wicked of these is the concentration camps of Nazi Germany. I don't care how old you are. I don't care how often you've read about them. Every time you come to them again and you read or are confronted with what happened in those places, the depravity of it, the wickedness of it, shocks you all over again. 77 years ago from today, all but one of Germany's concentration camps were still murderously operational. Within a month, Auschwitz-Birkenau would be liberated, and by May, all of the camps would be liberated, and Nazi Germany would unconditionally surrender. The prisoners of the camps welcomed the Soviet soldiers, the U.S. soldiers, the British soldiers, when they marched into that area, and they welcomed them as liberators. They understood that with the conquest of those armies, the, their captors, their enslavers were, were defeated. They rejoiced that their captive, captors were defeated and they were set free from their chains. And though some of them spent years in captivity, not a single one of those who had been in the concentration camps remained in the camps once the liberators came. As long as the Nazi government remained in power, they had no status or freedom. But once Germany fell, they were no longer prisoners. They'd been transformed from those who had been enslaved to those who were now free. 
And free people don't stay in prisons. Friends, from the moment Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, man has been enslaved by the wicked rule of sin and death. Some of you today remain enslaved to the wicked, murderous, depraved enslavement of sin and death. Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, is the great liberator. He alone can set you free from the enslavement of sin. He alone defeated sin and death, and he alone sets the captives free. We celebrate Christmas today in part because Jesus is the true freedom. We celebrate Christmas today in part because the hope of liberation is found only in Christ. You see, if the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. For more sermons, blog posts, and other related content, go to bensmithsenior.org. That's bensmithsr.org. I would love for you to join us this coming Sunday at 201 Ava Street here in Waycross. Our morning services begin at 10.30 a.m. For more information about Central Baptist, go to cbcwaycross.org. Again, thank you for listening. And until the Lord returns, let us live each moment all for the King and all for the kingdom.